Welcome back to Out of the Question, my podcast brought to you by The Kicker. The Kicker is a newsletter slash website which contains TV, film and comedy journalism and opinion. And you can also get a scrapbook of bonus content on all Out of the Questions episodes. That's thekicker.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or if you want to help keep the show on the road, it's five bucks a month. Thekicker.substack.com. Now, my guest this week is the satirist, humorist, author, and stand-up Titus O'Reilly. Titus used to be called Alex Toomey. He was a corporate guy who specialized in crisis and issues management. And as we discover in this interview, Alex started writing a blog while he was still in his office job and gave himself the pen name Titus O'Reilly. The blog was hilarious and it turned out I wasn't the only one to think so. He was soon asked to write books and do live shows and more success followed. Now you can see him regularly casting his hilariously jaundiced eye over every AFL season on radio and his regular appearances on the front bar where he mocks his own team Melbourne for being posh and my team Carlton for everything. His blockbuster podcast, Sports Bazaar with Mick Malloy, in which Titus tries to bamboozle Mick with the strangest stories to occur in world sport, is back for another season, so check that out. This conversation looks under the bonnet of how you transition from a real job into becoming a comedy professional. It's full of wisdom and revelation, but always returns to the theme of hard work. As usual, I started by asking Titus how his colleagues would describe him. Well, I think the most interesting thing there is that I don't really have co-workers, which is, which is kind of, it speaks volumes of me that I've carved out a career where I don't really have to work with other people. <laughs> uh, so I, I, before I got into comedy, I worked the corporate world a very That's long right. time and, you know, had a lot of, uh, a lot of co-workers and, they used to find me either annoyingly blunt or refreshingly blunt, depending <laughs> on who the person was. And I, I sort of learned to be at the top of those big corporates. You kind of, you have to either be a true believer in what they're doing. So you have to sort of be like, we are truly changing the world through technology or through banking or through whatever. You have to kind of either truly believe that or you have to be really good at faking it. Oh, yes, yes. And if you're the one pointing out that I don't really think a new PowerPoint slide that says we have a new culture is energizing the masses of our workforce, people kind of don't like it. Yes. <laughs> did you, how did you make the transition? So you obviously, I remember the, the newsletter or the blog. Was that the yeah. first thing that you, you did in your like spare time? Yeah, like I, I was like a lot of people. I was working in sort of corporate communications, which anyone that's in corporate communications is someone who enjoyed writing and was no good at maths. So it was the only career open to them. <laughs> and then you get into it and suddenly it's 10 years in and all your writing is like CEO speeches about, you know, um that sort of, you know, talk about the most boring things in the world and yeah, innovation, yeah, yeah. dropping the word innovation every two <laughs> seconds, even though you're doing something everyone does. Um, and I sort of thought, oh, I need to do something creative. I used to like writing. So I just started mm. a tour account and a blog. And I, I literally thought it'd be like me in the gym. I, I'd do it for two weeks all in foods <laughs> and then stop. But it just started to take off, you know, it just was one of those rare things in the social media age it was like you know this was like 10 plus years just over 10 years ago and it, it got to the point where suddenly people were contacting me going oh 
would you like to come and you know do a show would you like to come talk would you like to come be on our radio show and then I actually had Penguin Random House say we'd love to give you a book deal and I suddenly kind of crept up on me this is how unplanned it is I suddenly worked out hey I could quit my day job oh wow it was the real I could quit my day job moment and it was like yeah, it was pretty. I didn't hate my job necessarily. I wasn't one of those people that just hate every day of it. But it was pretty amazing to sort of go. I've accidentally built a career, and it involves sitting around watching sport pretty much the whole time. And so you you started doing shows, and how did you actually approach the performance of presumably having not come from a performance background? Well, I, I'd done a lot of public speaking. Gotcha. That, so that, but that was you know corporate sort of being a spokesperson or speaking at events and stuff. And so there was an element of I was never really worried about talking in front of a crowd, which some right. people are right, you know, like even stand-ups you and I would know who are considered huge successes and are great at their jobs still get nervous getting up. They hate the getting up in front of a crowd bit, you know. It's mm. that old, that, that's the bit that scares them more than being funny. I was a bit round the other way where I felt perfectly fine getting up and talking in front of a crowd. But the funny bit's the hard bit, right? Like, you know, <laughs> like anyone can give a kind of a, a serious or heartfelt speech. It's like you see at a wedding, if someone gets up and does the, you know, tells mildly an like, amusing anecdote and then says, no, but in all seriousness, you guys are great and I love you. And everyone goes, what a great speech, you know? Yeah, like that's, yeah. But to, to consistently get laughs and structure and build an hour's worth of material, not, not like I have a theory that anyone, if you put a gun to their head and said, you have to do five minutes of stand up, they could pull their funniest story that they know. It could mm. even be someone else they know and just tell that. And they'd probably be okay. It's when you have to do an hour and then another hour the next year. And, and you're getting, you're getting further away from your lived experience in mining <laughs> for stuff, you know. So I was sort of okay, but I, I sort of said jokingly to someone once, they said, how do you do stand-up and not get worried? And I said, well, I, I'm a white man. Talking to a group of people without them responding is what I normally call <laughs> a meeting. This is just normal for me, you know. And... um you know, thinking inherently whatever I'm saying is interesting is kind of in my middle-aged white man's <laughs> DNA. But, um, no, the truth is I when I had to do my first, my first ever stand-up because of the weirdness of social media, you know, and every every true stand-up who came up through the clubs hates this, and I understand why. I Someone said, would you want to do a stand-up show? And I sort of said, oh, you know, and I'd done some funny talk, but this was an actual show, and I said, yeah, sh-. I said, let's give it a go. And... They said, all right, we'll put the tickets on sale. And I thought, like, we'll get, like, 20 people or something. It'll be a good warm-up. Anyway, it sold out, 500 people. So that was my first ever stand-up experience. I had to do I was the headliner, whole hour, 500 people. And how did you practice for it? So I just did, I mean, I'm not saying I was, the performance side of it was probably not as good as I'd be now, but what I did do is I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and memorized and practiced and like you would a speech you know you just you just put the work in you know there's a there's a there's a secret we all hold as anyone who does anything creative that we all pretend we're inspired and we can just riff off this but the real secret is even the the best i've seen they they do the work 
they just work their butts off. 100%. Because I thought I worked hard in, in my profession until I moved to LA. And then I saw the work that they did over there, yeah. with, you know, screenwriters did over there. And I went, oh, okay, got to step up. It's yeah, really, I mean, you know. I mean, I think I'd written like, you know, and I still use this for stand up now. You get better at the performance, obviously. Like, so I sort of think there's three things in stand up there's the written material. So if you, not necessarily written, but if you printed off the script, the quality of just the pure jokes of what you're saying. So if you took a transcript of any stand up performance, you could rate that as how good it was. And then on top of that, and so say that's outstanding. Then on top of that, you put the performance, so the bit, you know, the acting, the carrying on, or the, hmm. you know, whether it's impressions, whether it's back and forth, whether it's crowd work. So that's the next component. And then I think the last bit is just pure likability, charisma. And hmm. you see some some comedians have the likability, charisma. Their actual jokes are not that great. Hmm. But they can muscle them across the line. Because and then you see others I've seen who. The written the the jokes are fantastic, but they just don't have the performing skills or the they've got no presence on stage. And the best have all three, you know, they've got the charisma, they've got the ability to actually act and perform, and they've their written material or their actual material is gold. And I mm. think in those early ones, I you know, without sounding arrogant, I really had the written material was good. The rest was okay, but the you know, I'd put the work into the one bit that you you can control a bit more. Yeah, yeah. To the point where my process of writing a stand-up show is I I sit down in front of a Word document, start jotting down ideas, then I will write it like almost a written article, like a written gotcha. speech, like it might be 10,000 words or something, right? And then I'll cut it into sections and I'll keep massaging it. And then I'll actually go through and highlight on the document where the punchlines are. Yes. So I can visually see where the punchlines are and where there's like, oh, you're going like up two pages and there's not a joke, you know, or, or not a, you know what I mean? But I actually like can almost get a real sense of, yeah, I think I need something there. I think so I can visually almost see it as well. And then what I do is I eventually just have by the, then I, then I keep reading that script over and over and every time you're tweaking bits and maybe you, and it's through the doing you come up with half the jokes, right? This is what mm. I find funny when people say, oh, I've got to come up with jokes and then I'll start the work. I'm like, no, just start writing mm. and, and don't aim to have any jokes. Just start to go, oh, that's a topic, that's a topic. And I said, and through doing that, you come up with the jokes. And so each time I read through this script and then each time I start deleting out everything that's the, pre the setup because I know the topic and I know I need to get to this joke. So it's less important as long as you know Here's the, and so by the end, it's just a Word document with heading of the various sections with the highlighted bits of the punchlines. That's then really great. Then eventually I take out the, even the jokes and I just have the 10 headings or something that is the structure of the thing, you know, and I sort of... Right. You know, so that's how I sort of do it, which is a very... But I find it very foolproof because you you've really overworked the material before you even get on stage, and you've and because the thing that terrifies me more on getting stage than getting laughs is forgetting stuff. Me too. Yeah. That that terrifies no. I, 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 that honestly terrifies me more because I kind of think stand up. I always like to say this, and it annoys people. I was saying this to Sam Pang before he went on his tour. Uh, around country, I said, stand-up's not that hard. 
And he goes, don't say that. Because you know how stand-ups, we like to make out we're doing brain surgery or something. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. Like, but I would say, it's not that hard if you are funny and you do the work. If you're not funny, it is the hardest thing to do, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's like if you're not physically coordinated, playing soccer is hard, you know. It, it's all relative. So, you know, I said to Pang, you're a genuinely funny guy. Yeah. And he's done stand-up before and stuff. And then it's just doing the work. But if you've done that, you shouldn't really worry too much. What then worries me is I'll be up there and I'll just totally forget a whole chunk of the show. That terrifies me more than anything else. Me too. It's not like you've got another actor on stage with you who can remind you in in a way, you know? Um, No, you get lost up there and it's mm. It's, 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 that's the worst thing that can happen. Like you can, you realize as you go on, bombing's not the end of the world and things like that. But you, like, that's what always terrifies me because I figure everything else I can figure it out in the moment, but the, mm-hmm. the forgetting whole chunks, which is why I'm so pedantic about getting ready for it. Um, that's a really great process that you've got. And, um, yes, I have done a one man show and, and forgotten my lines. And I just remember getting on the piss the night before and I, while I was on stage, I could just smell the myself sweating vodka, <laughs> which distracted me even more. Yeah, because I just started having this self-loathing experience. It's like, fuck you for getting drunk. You're meant to be a professional. Yeah. Now you've forgotten your lines. Um, yeah. and a decade afterwards, I was still beating myself up about it. Oh um, yeah, you never do. That's like, you know, I I just the worst is sometimes when I'm up there. I'll do a bit and then I'll move on to the next bit. And then I'll remember I left out a good joke from the oh, early one. And that's I, true. And I'm like, so that the audience think you're just moved on to the next bit and you're chatting, but in your head, while you're still telling jokes, part of your brain is going, you didn't do that joke. And so it's kind of amazing. Cause I've sometimes someone will show me they've filmed a, me doing stand up or something and I'll watch it. And in my head, I'm going, I, that was the bit where I was remembering I hadn't done a bit earlier, but it, it doesn't come across like that in the video. Like I've somehow your brain can work on these different levels where you're doing a show while having a monologue in your head of what you're doing, whether, do you know what I mean? It's kind of, oh, mate, I totally do. It's and, like, and yeah. it doesn't come across that you're distracted or anything, but in my mind, I know, well, that's the bit where I, which is why whenever I come off stage, I always, I, I never am totally happy with the show because yeah. you and your head have this almost, you know, platonic ideal of what the <laughs> show should have been. And so everyone else doesn't know you've forgotten that joke. Mm. So they might have laughed all the way through, but you're like, I left that, I left five jokes on the table or <laughs> I, I mangled that. But they don't know that because they've never seen the show before or read your script or do you know what I mean? So you oh, 100%. Yeah, so I come off going, that was terrible. And everyone's like, that was one of the best ones you've ever done. I'm like, nah, I, I missed this bit. I wanted to do this different, you know, so I'm, I'm never that happy. Even well, That if- is a lesson. So even though you're hating yourself, you need to go, thank you. Thank you so much. Because yeah. like I've often said, yeah, I, I was better last night. You should yeah. have seen me last night. And they, they get all confused and then they feel a little bit cheated or something, you know? And so you just have to go, thank you. Even though... <laughs> You're furious with yourself. You can't even tell when you're good in a like. No, you can't. Because well, because it's. I always say, and this was what was funny in the pandemic, where you had to do Zoom. People were doing Zoom shows, 
And, you know, you, you'd tell a joke and it would just be silence or people clapping or uh. something because you had to mute. And I always say comedians, really, our instrument is the audience, right? Like we play the audience. We get certain reactions by saying certain things. And the audience is sort of like almost like a dance partner as well. Like you, you kind of sometimes you walk out on stage and they are in such a good mood and they start laughing early on and that gets you in a good mood and you end up having a blinder of a show because you're looser, but it's, they've actually helped you get there as much as you've helped them get there. And then other times you walk out and the audience is cold and you don't know why, for whatever reason, there might be a group attended them in that have just had a fight before getting, you don't know. Right. But sometimes you can do the same show that's killed 10 nights in a row and for some reason, this isn't audience is really hard to get going. And you start to stiffen up a little bit. You're less sort of expansive. You try less funny asides. And they're the ones where you sometimes think, actually, I perform really well because I eventually got them over the line. But I had to really, yes. where other nights I've walked out, and before I've even opened my mouth, I'm like, we are so on with this crowd. This oh, is wow. going to be a great show because they're in a great mood, right? They, I have a big theory that, you can't blame the audience if they don't laugh, but also they almost have to meet you halfway. Yeah. Like some corporates that I've done, I did an AFL Hall of Fame and I walked out and it's televised. So it's, you know, it's 2,000 people, it's all the AFL. And they didn't, they, they didn't tell everyone to sit down first or anything. So I walk out on stage and they softly announce me and it's televised live and the whole audience is standing up still talking and drinking. Oh, heavens. So I have to walk out and say, um, and no one realizes I've walked on stage either because the announcement was so, you know, normally someone comes out and gets the crowd to sit down. They were about to start the show. They didn't do any of that. And I walk out and and everyone is standing and talking. So I have to spend the first two minutes on stage getting everyone to sit down like a school principal. And then I do all my jokes and it's like, I sort of fought it, what I describe as fought them to a draw. I, I, (laughs) (laughs) laughs but it was like but i was coming from so far back like you know for comic those gigs are hard enough (laughs) when you walk in in the first five minutes going come on i'll keep you in if you don't sit down like you know what are you meant to say and it's like the most powerful people in melbourne all like standing there who all like the sound of their own voice. And yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You it to like, you know. The shut up. Oh, my God. So it's televised too. So that's the other oh. thing I'm thinking, well, this is good telly. Um, <laughs> well, what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? Well, I mean, I got, I mean, I've had lots because you just get lots of unhelpful feedback. But um, I think the most unhelpful feedback I ever got is all through primary school even told you talk too much. You know, this was every teacher. My my prep teacher, so, you know, that's first year of primary school here in Victoria, told my mum, she only told me this years later, there's no hope for him. It's pointless sending him to school. This is in oh my prep. God. This is I'm five years old. Oh, my God, mate. And I used to get told all the time, like, you know, stop talking. And then as you get older, you realise being able to speak publicly is a skill. Holy shit. Oh, yeah, I think... I. Obviously, uh, it's an occupational hazard, isn't it? You know, of course we're going to talk. Well, you you kind of, that's the thing. I mean, it's like no people say no one likes a smart ass and you go, actually, people really do like a smart ass. That's actually. Have you met Sam Pang? Yeah, have you met half the, half the 
But, it, you know, I just, you know, there's so much of that stuff where I, I just think there's so much advice that goes around just generally, like, like people say things and you just go, really, is that really true? Like, you know, people say, you know, you need to stay at a job for two, three years before moving on. And I always say, no, you need to stay there long enough until you can get the next job. It might be a yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. Like there's so many things that people just say as wrote that you just say, really, that's your advice, you know? And Oh, man. I used to... Re- take it seriously but now it's just like i hardly even read it you know if there's something's coming back to me via twitter yeah. or, you know but but that's what twitter does and social media does though is anyone can write something and then because it's in a written form we're, we're sort of our brains are still back in the pre-social media thing where if something was in print there was a series of steps for it to get in print and therefore yeah. it must have a validness to it. <laughs> where now none of those steps exist, right? It's straight from the person's brain within seconds, right? And so you'll get someone who will say, you are not funny. Yeah. And and every comedian, they all lie and say they don't do this, but it instantly sends every comedian into a bit of a spiral. <laughs> you, like, you know, day 42, 700, yeah. you know, with no profile pic, with five followers, you know, maybe he's right. And and but then you go well. Hang on, I work with people. I've worked with people over the years who was everyone knew was the idiot of the workplace. That you just you know it's like the equivalent of the village idiot. How do you know that guy's not that guy that everyone else thinks he's a miserable? But we we sort of take it on face value because it's it's written or printed. Um, Uh, Yeah, and it takes you you know per your point, it takes you a long time to actually discard it. Well, the thing I think is it's the percentages, right? So if I do a joke, yeah, yeah. you know, 99, 95% of people seem to retweet and like it, and then I've got 5% who hate it, I go, well, that's a big win. That's, that's a huge yeah, win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, because <laughs> comedy is subjective too. So if someone says, you know, you're not funny, well, to them I'm not. There's no point arguing it. But on top of that, it's even worse sometimes. I, I've done jokes where people criticise you because they don't realise it's a joke. So it's not even a question of is it funny or not. They don't even get it's a joke. Oh, no. You know, they like they point out, they correct you or something and say, yeah. you know, I did a joke when Australia, it wasn't even a particularly good joke, but Australia qualified for the Brazil World Cup. And I said, oh, finally those Spanish lessons are going to pay off. And I, I cannot tell you how many emails I got <laughs> and messages saying they speak Portuguese in Brazil. And, so, <laughs> and you're kind of like... Mate, that's that's the total point of the like. Like, why am I arguing with this person? Do you know what I mean? They don't even get you. You're being sarcastic. Or they'll know? explain your joke back to you. Yeah, you know, like so. So it's not even like so. People worry about, oh, am I funny or not? It's like half the people that tell you aren't funny don't even get you making a joke half the time. Exactly. So, so why are you worrying? You know, like, you know, it's. I'd more think it's amazing anyone. <laughs> that i have an audience at all i worry more that's the thing that i focus on a bit more. That's, that's right that's right it is interesting what you're saying about you know comedians going going to a spiral based on one person's comment on twitter when in fact they are they are performing to 2000 seat rooms but you um, can get if you you can a comedian and, and i think it's human nature you can have 2000 people sit and tell you you're great mm. and then one person says you're crap and you will focus you know, most of your attention on the one person that says you're crap, you know, it's like the other 2000 really don't negate it. 
Brando used to say that. He said, you know, after an opening night of a play, he gravitate towards the one person in the room who hated his performance. It's uh, which is weird though, because yeah. like, why do we do? It's like they talk about in, uh, you know, you you hear that stuff of uh, negging where people say negative things to pick people up, you know? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you go, why would that work? But it, there's obviously some truth in that because as a comedian, you almost the if you want to get a comedian's attention, tell them they're not funny because oh. they will spend the next ten years thinking about you. When <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you say I love your stuff, you're great. We kind of just go. Uh, you know, okay, great, thanks, yeah. move on. What, or, or what does that fucking know? Um, <laughs> what, what is the failure you most cherish, mate? Uh, well, I think my favourite failure I've ever had, and not because I've learnt anything from this or it was just, it was it it just became a funny thing is I, I once got, I, I got someone organised once for me to do a footy club um speak at a footy club lunch but didn't tell me they had it on and they rang me in a panic and said oh. I've, I've booked you for a gig in an hour and i forgot to tell you oh my god and i was like i think i was asleep when they rang me and like <laughs> in the morning and i think i'd been out the night before or something so i was totally unprepared <laughs> and also a lot of my stuff sports related so like political humor it's it's kind of has it's some of it's universal or you know can work but a lot of it's timely like it's the jokes of what's happening in sport at the time so you know mm. if i got up and started telling mike tyson jokes they're a bit dated you know you kind of <laughs> you know you kind of like so often i'm and i didn't perform for a little while because he, he hadn't told me this was coming up i hadn't written any new material for a while and i was working on other things and i think i was doing a book actually so i was totally unprepared and i rushed there and he said, I'll try and push your performance time back. And I said, I, I was annoyed about having him do it. So I, I get there. And by the time I get there, out of like 200 people, I think about 30 people are left inside. The rest are all smoking and drinking out the back. It's been a boozy footy lunch. Everyone is drunk. No one wants to hear from a comedian. And I get up and I they say, here he is. They don't even properly introduce me. It's so, by this point, just a chaos of an event. And I get up and start to do my material. Barely anyone is listening except in the table dead in front of me, about two metres from me, is a guy called Mick Martin who used to play for North Melbourne. And Carlton. Who was one of the toughest players in the (laughs) AFL in the history of time and looks like central casting for, you know, almost like a, you know, a Guy Ritchie criminal movie, you know, like... Sorry, Mick, you're a great player and I really like him, but he looks tough. He looks... Mm. And I'm bombing because I'm not prepared. I'm totally thrown by the whole thing. No one's paying any attention. I've been terribly... And I'm doing material that's a bit off and a bit old and I hadn't prepared at all. And I'm (laughs) bombing and bombing and bombing. I think I'm meant to do 10 minutes. I do about three. And he just, like, stares at me the whole time. God. And you know he was someone I looked up to and all this. And I'm like, I cannot believe. Him. And and he looks, he's an intense guy. You know, this yes. is a guy who was a defender who took on the best forwards and like, and he's just staring at me. And I'm just like, oh my god, this is going to linger. <laughs> so I, uh, so that stuck with me for ages, right? That you know, like I'm like, whenever I, I think he was coming on the front bar once, and I was like, oh, he, he hates me, you know, sort of oh, thing. Fuck. Anyway, that. Five years later, I do this 
grand final luncheon thing and at another thing and it's like and i i get up and um and in my head over the years i've had this running like we were talking about through my head of oh who won't remember you know i i've focused on this but he won't remember and so i do this lunch and i come off stage and there's after party drinks or something is the day before the grand final and so i'm having drinks with people and the gig i'd done had gone really well so you're feeling really good and everyone's coming up and saying nice things and then there suddenly in front of me is mick martin and I said, um, oh, hi, Mick. And I said, I actually, um, he said, oh, very funny today. Really great. And I said, oh, thanks. And then I said, you you might, you wouldn't remember me, but I actually had to do a gig in front. And he goes, oh, no, I remember. You were terrible. <laughs> you were woeful. I thought you were, for years, I thought you were terrible. It's only when I've seen you a few times recently. And oh. so I told him the backstory. I said, this is why I was so bad. I was like, Oh, it, you never get the chance as a comedian to kind of like explain why a gig sucked to someone, but it was such this connection of me going, yeah. And then I like I woke up late. I didn't know the gig was happening. I, and he's like, he was just laughing. I go, you don't get this. I've been thinking about this for years. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite sort of failure because it came full circle and I got to sort of say, no, I don't suck. You oh, know. Mate. Because we've Thank all God. had that terrible yeah. performance where you go, I want to tell people why that was terrible. Like, yeah, totally. I just want to say to the audience, guys, full disclosure. <laughs> you, know, just... you always want to bring him in, just say, listen, let's be clear. I was in bed 10 minutes ago. Um, yeah, exactly. I've got nothing prepared. <laughs> yeah. um, mate, which word or phrase do you most overuse? Well, the one I've been, I was thinking about, the, the one I've been told I overuse a few times to the point I've sort of stopped that is when I'd be discussing or, you know, with loved ones, I'd say, after I'd say something, I'd say, well, this is this, is this and this. And then I'd say at the end, am I wrong? <laughs> and the thing I've learned is that, and being told is that's, they don't appreciate me saying, am I wrong? Like, you know, I, it's almost like saying, I dare you to, contradict me but uh they've also said you know it, it seems that even if i'm i'm not wrong i'm 100 percent right on what i'm saying that doesn't <laughs> endear myself to them like pointing out something that's true is not always as endearing and it reminds me that michael lewis who wrote moneyball and yes short and they've been made into movies but one of my favorite things he wrote in the big short in the book I think it's in the movie, but it was definitely in the book. And he'd overheard a Wall Street tra trader saying it on the phone in a bathroom in a bar. He said, the truth is like poetry, and most people fucking hate poetry. Wow. And Lou, my always says, I have to credit this to this finance guy. I don't even know who it was. I overheard it. But it's so true. Like, I find when I say, am I wrong? Even if I'm right, people don't always appreciate you pointing out. And how did that feedback come to you? Like, was it your family? They just said, oh, by the way, can you not say? One, 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 my partner gave me very clear feedback that that is something when we're arguing or discussing that does not endear <laughs> me well to anyone. And they're totally right. You know, I, it's one of those things I say under, it's a, like a, a, you know, it's sort of like an emphasis on a point, right? Where you yeah, kind yeah. of, am I, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. But that is not endearing apparently and um 
<laughs> I'd add that to a lot of things I do that aren't endearing, but that's definitely. And it's one that I can, t- when someone says it to you, you go, yeah, that would annoy the hell out of me too. <laughs> I've often pointed out that why I might not be wrong about the point I'm making, it has nothing to do with the argument we're coming <laughs> um the final question mate do you have a motto i do have a motto this is the only thing i've ever come up with that i'm actually think is uh you know we talk about all the work we do and stuff and there's times you think this is the only thing i actually think is at any level of use in my life and this is um, the motto i have which i which i came up with is um don't have faith in yourself have faith in how bad other people are wow and this Great. is because I constantly find when I'm chatting to people and myself and it can be creative types or people who aren't, who people going for jobs and stuff, people would say to me, oh, I don't know if I can do that job. And I'd say, well, I don't know if you can do it, but have you seen who is doing that job? Like we constantly focus on ourselves yes. and think, am I good enough to do X without ever thinking, well, that person's doing it already and they're hopeless. Well, completely hopeless, and they've got that job. You know, like there such is such a, a good point. There, there is a thing about thinking not so much about like, are you good enough? It's have you seen the standard and quality <laughs> out there that, that to sort of write yourself off straight away is probably not worth it. It's you know, like, and 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 what I it's not an arrogant statement. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's knowing like I might not be the best comedian and all that, but. God, I've seen some get up there that I'm at least better than them. I'm at least or as good as them, you know, like, but am I the best? No, probably not. But, you know, it's have faith in how bad other people are. And if people think about listening to this thing about their own (laughs) workplace, I mean, I I had a woman come to me and she was like 25-year-old who I was was her boss. And I remember a few times, she was just an absolute superstar at her job, but she's came to me a few times and said, I just don't know if I'd be able to do that and I would say well this is the guy doing that job you know the guy doing that job what do you think of him and she'd say well he's hopeless we all <laughs> everyone knows he's universally hopeless and I said yeah so why are you worried you're at a minimum going to be as good as him mate you're a great boss it's a lovely thing to say I think I think it's very inspiring but it's true because you know it's just you, you can get too focused on your, your how bad you are yeah without seeing how bad everyone else is Mate, I like love you it. Raise, you raise the bar. You have this idea in your head that everyone else is amazing when you're, and, and it's just not true. It's said right because that's how I decided to write my first play. As a friend of mine wrote a play, and it was appalling. And I went to see it, and I went, "Okay, I'm now a playwright." You know, have you seen <laughs> that? Yeah, it's it is very inspiring. But also to the person who came to you in the workplace and said that she couldn't do the job that someone else was doing. Those people tend to have attention to detail and are quite thorough. Yeah. So it's interesting that that doesn't translate to self-confidence. Well, I mean, self-confidence, even if it's based on a lack of ability, is a superpower, right? So just having confidence is just having a go, which is what confidence often leads to, is if you're overconfident, you'll at least have a go. Yeah. You see this all the time where people will have amazing careers just because they're really confident. And yeah. it's because they don't talk themselves out of it before they start. So they, and so often they're the only ones that show up or apply for yeah. the job or whatever, you know. And I always, you know, people sort of, there's this big trend at the moment to say, you know, white men are overconfident. It's a terrible thing. And I've long said, no, you know, I want to start a charity where instead we don't, we don't get rid of the confidence of white men. We, 
We want to expand that to everyone. We want a yeah. charity that gives white man confidence to everyone out there. <laughs> because you can <laughs> achieve amazing things if you just if you just have a go. Like and 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 not believing in yourself will shoot you down. Like it's better to have it's good to be realistic about how good you are, but at the same time you'd probably never do anything if you were too realistic. Learn how to have the confidence of white men. You know? like, rather than focusing on the white men, let's let's spread this to every group. You know, I, I often think, you know, I want my kids, you know, male or female, to have that level of confidence. It's protecting it in other groups. White men seem to hang on to it, but it's giving it to other groups, not not taking it away. I want everyone to have that that self-belief. Mate, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I'll press stop now. 